so we're very lucky today to have two um, fantastically talented writers at the uh, peak of their powers, and it feels like at the, at the point where they're writing um, uh, uh, exciting new work um, that's coming out in both their cases pretty soon. Maud's going to read from her new work today. She uh, is the author of The Shape of Things to Come, uh, a novel, genealogy, a novel, and uh, a collection of short stories called Drastic. She teaches at the University of Maryland, in, lives in D.C., and had praise from no less than George Saunders, who writes that she... Uh, her, her prose style is filled with compassionate, joyful, lyrical voice. She won a 2007 Calvino Prize and is uh, a writer who I have discovered recently and, and, and thoroughly enjoyed reading, so I think she'll, she'll do a marvellous job tonight. Karen Russell is the author of St. Lucy's Home for Girls Raised by Wolves, a collection of short stories, Swamplandia, a novel, and another collection of short stories, Vampires in the Lemon Grove. Her work has received great praise for the beautiful density of its language and the, the startling breadth of its imagination. Uh, one of my favorite novelists, Gary Steingart, has written that her work sweeps the ground from beneath your feet. And no less an authority than Stephen King has described her work as creepy and sinister. Swamplandia <laughs> <laughs> um, was the finalist for the, the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and uh, she very recently uh, received the MacArthur Genius Grant. And like Maud, she teaches as well. She teaches at Rutgers. So um, Maud, if you'd like to read first. Perfect. It's really lovely to be here um, and lovely to be reading with, with Karen. Um, I'm going to read a few short sections from the beginning of my novel, The Man Who Walked Away, which I've just finished and which will be published uh, this spring. And I'm going to be reading, it's, it's the beginning, so I don't need to tell you that much, but I'm going to tell you a little. And this is what I'm going to tell you. It's inspired by a French psychiatric case history from the 19th century. And the case involved a patient whose name was incredibly Albert Dada. Um, and he was treated at the hospital of St. Andre in Bordeaux in 1886. And he had spent years walking in a, in a semi-trance state throughout large parts of Europe, sometimes 50 miles in a day, often without sleeping or eating. And he would wake up in this public square or that one, countries away from home, and he wouldn't know how he got there. Um, this was upsetting and kind of exhausting. So he, after many years, took himself to this asylum in Bordeaux where he encountered a doctor who eventually created an original diagnosis for him Fugueur, which was the, is, is the origin of uh, Fugue State. So, there you go. Um, the man who walked away. It was as though he had always been there, haunting the landscape, if only you were paying attention. If it were possible to see the final movement of Beethoven's string quartet number 16 in F major, that's what he was like, said the violinist from the Leipzig Orchestra. The man he saw walking along the Weisselster River reminded him of the note Beethoven wrote on the score underneath those eerie opening chords, Musasein, Musasein, and the note he wrote under the joyous faster chords swelling in response, Esmusein. The walking man was the question and the answer, must it be, must it be, it must be. It wasn't unusual to see a man out walking, even as the railways spiderwebbed their way across Europe. People still walk to get somewhere and to get nowhere. But the people who claimed to have seen him, this was later, after he became known as Le Voyageur de Docteur, 
after he disappeared altogether, agreed there was something different about this man. Everyone who saw him said so. Oh yes, I've seen him, said the woman in the lowlands, who spotted him making his way along a ridge as she hung wash out to dry for her brothers away carving tournée stone into baptismal fonts. The coal miner in Liège, blinking into daylight, saw him walking in the valley. The baker in Coblenz saw him cross two of that village's four bridges. The hotel maid in Mulhouse, that Alsatian city of a thousand chimneys, glimpsed him from the window walking through the public square as she snapped a clean sheet across a bed. Even when he was right there, she said, he was somewhere else. He shimmered on the cusp of appearing, or was he disappearing? It was not surprising that the violinist saw him walking along the banks of the Weisselster. The walking man was often spotted near rivers, making his way up and down the hilly streets of Poitiers at the confluence of the Clan and the Boivre, striding through Bayonne at the confluence of the Nive and the Adour, through Valence d'Agen by the Bargalonne, through Maastricht by the Meuse, through Cologne by the Rhine. If anybody had asked the man, whose name was Albert, he would say the song of his body walking was a silky mist. Nobody asked. Il revient, the rivers called to him. He returns. The silky mist was his constant companion as he, as he discovered himself walking, not knowing how he got there, under the soft spring sun, into summer's glare, through the muted fall, and into the hard chill of winter when the trees are bare. When, when Albert walked along the paths to forges, when he walked the tracks to mines and quarries, when he walked the causeways from village to farm to town to city, when he walked along the trails to market for glassmakers and the merchants of salt, flax, hemp, linen, and yarn, when he walked along the administrative highways, when he passed recruits and vagabonds, rag and bone merchants, and chimney sweeps, when he walked along pilgrimage routes to miraculous fountains or the chapel of a healing saint, when he walked past men shouldering their dead along roads overgrown with tall grass to the cemetery, wherever he walked, he was filled with a wonder so fierce it was as if he were being burned alive from its astonishing beauty. When Albert walked, he was astonished. When he walked, he was the steam engine, powering himself like a great ship. He was the telegraph. He was the phonograph. He cut a swath through the second half of that century of invention and endless possibility. Still faster, he moved faster, faster than time. To keep from being afraid, Albert sometimes says to himself, fascinating, or magnificent, or yet another escapade. Even when he is lost, he is not lost. No one fine day he found himself in a public square. No it seems, or it appears, or not able to say how he got here. He is, he is, he is, he is here, walking somewhere on the road to Poitiers and Langemot, Champigny and Meaux, Provence and Vitry-le-Francois, Chalon sur Marne, Chaumont, Vesoul, Macon. Years pass differently on the road. When Albert discovers himself walking, not knowing how he got there, through Budweiss and Prague and Leipzig and Berlin, he is 13, selling umbrellas for the salesman in La Teste. He is 17, spending those first nights newly orphaned in the rotten hollow of a fallen tree, and then 18, 19, then 20. He is all of those Alberts. He is himself and himself and himself again. At a nearby table in a tavern at the foot of the Cantabrian Mountains, a man makes casual conversation, and Bairn whispers its way into Albert's head. Bairn, 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 the word as delicious as a cake. And soon he discovers himself not knowing how he got there in Bairn. For no reason at all, he discovers himself walking through Tournai, through Ostend, through Bruges, through Ghent, through Liège, through Nuremberg, through Stuttgart and Mulhouse. 
His blood circulates astonishment to the tips of his fingers and his long nose, through, throughout his large head and his absurdly large ears, through the curves of his shapely calves as he walks through Delft and Amsterdam and Zwolle. When Albert walks, people treat him like a prince. They are that kind. Even the men who put him in prison have been gentle. Your papers? He is always without papers. Smell me, he says, holding out a sleeve to a gendarme who arrests him, his face braced for the worst. I'm not a vagrant. Surely, Albert thinks, a man as clean as he cannot be considered a vagrant. He is always very clean. Cleanliness is not easy when there is dust and after it rains mud to contend with. Even in fields of corn, of cotton, of olives, in the fields filled with sheep, cattle, and hogs, not all of them friendly, he manages. On the road, there are lakes and ponds and rivers. He has resorted to large puddles of rainwater, but he is always clean. The gentleman at the French consul in Dusseldorf gives him five marks. The consul in Budapest gives him a fourth-class ticket to Vienna. The one in Leipzig gives him seven florins and a lodging ticket. The French ambassador in Prague takes up a collection and buys him a pair of shoes. Yet another escapade, and yet another escapade, and yet another escapade. The mayor of somewhere else entirely puts his arm around Albert's shoulder and says, now go home to Bordeaux. There's nothing better than returning home. But to Albert, kicking a fallen apple through the tall grass of another cemetery of toppled, crowded gravestones, home is never more home than when he is leaving. And he is always leaving, tugged like a balloon into the air. Though he might be gone days or weeks or months, though the small cottage he once shared with his father is ramshackle, though its windows rattle in the wind off the harbor, though the bedclothes are tattered, though a mysterious mold grows in the kitchen, though the mice who dance in the pots are raising children in the stove, it is still his home. Once when he discovered himself there, his father's old friend, the lamplighter, offered to help. He tied Albert to his bed with rope. To keep you safe, the lamplighter said, tightening the ropes around Albert's wrists and his ankles with hands that smelled permanently of gas. He would have wanted me to keep you safe, the lamplighter said, and then he began to cry. I know, Albert said. There was something comforting and familiar about the way the ropes held him, but then he woke up somewhere else into some other day, not knowing how he got there, the stray thread on his trousers and his chafed wrists the only sign of the heavy rope. He was not angry or surprised. There was no holding him. There was no keeping him safe. In Mont de Marsan, there is a poster above the bar in a public house, a soldier and trailing behind him a corps of infantrymen on bicycles waiting to be led into battle. Cyclists are called les marcheurs qui roulent. When Albert walks, he annihilates distance like a bicycle. He has no use for wheels, but covers as much distance. Un marcheur qui roule tout seul. Albert doesn't need a war. When he walks, he is a hero who has performed deeds of improbable greatness, and though he can't remember what they are, they are surely magnificent. When he walks, it doesn't matter that he can't remember what they are. When he walks, he is no longer only moving toward death. He is no longer only dying. The gift of life is in his bones. The birds in the sky above him are utterly bird. The shadows cast by leaves totally and completely shadow. Their beauty is indisputable. They are. They are here. He is. He is here. Ripe fruit falls to the ground at his feet, offering itself to him. From the riverbeds comes the song of frogs. When Albert walks, he has been kissed. When he walks, his existence is complete and his body is divine. He is elemental as the sky drenched with sun, then infused with red dusk, then night dark, then sun bright again. He walks for days without stopping, without eating, without sleeping in order to feel the gift of astonishment. 
He drifts on the fringes of days where a fog mutes the tick-tock, tick-tock, others adhere to so rigorously. Is it time to go? What time is it? Why is there never enough time? These are not his questions. When he walks, days and weeks and months are nothing but scurrilous rumor. He trammels winter, spring, summer, fall as if they were idle gossip. Where does the time go? Vanished into the woods between Bordeaux and Toulouse, splashed into the deep black water between Marseille and Blida, flittered into the sky with the sparrows between Geneva and Strasbourg. It is such and such a day, people say to him. We are this day. We are here on the great clock of history. Albert, here you are in this moment right here. Can't you see? No, he cannot. The world is enamored of time, its shapely hours, its miraculous minutes, its svelte and speedy seconds. The entire world, that is, except for Albert. This is how it goes, how it has always gone. He begins to fade, and then a terrible thirst comes upon him, and his body is overcome with restlessness. He must drink water, lots of water, six, maybe ten glasses of water in a row, and still he is thirsty. He sweats through his clothes, and he trembles, filled with a terrible itch. There is a ringing in his ears and in his legs, his hips and his groin. It crescendos until it becomes a song. He's crescendoed all over Europe, behind the black blots of fir woods near stone cattle tracks, enveloped in the smell of moss and damp stone behind a cathedral, in the dark, marshy open, all of nature invaded by a fog. What will you do? The urge to walk is the answer to this question. It falls upon him and lifts him into heavenly oblivion until he disappears. And when he reappears, he is walking again, somewhere else entirely. The sky darkening toward night when before the sun was just rising. The terrible itch gone. What terrible itch? Somewhere outside of Limoges, a man gives him a pair of shoes and he puts his old shoes to rest, burying them under a tree. He bows his head. Hail Mary, full of grace, he says the way he dimly remembers his mother did long ago before Albert was left all alone with only the silence waiting to be filled. Please, let it be filled. And when he walks, it is, fleetingly. But when he stops, when he stops out of the mist near the Société Française in Berlin, where he has given papers and new shoes, the face of an enormous dog, followed quickly by the body of the same enormous dog, tumbles him to the ground. The bite is painful, but worse is the man's face hovering above him. You must be hurt, the face says. It always hurts, Albert wants to say, but why begin a sentence he can't finish? The look on the man's face says it must be a problem of translation. He is right, though Albert understands German well enough. How can he be expected to make himself understood in any language when the words trail off from public square to public square if whole pages are missing from his life? When he stops, sometimes he discovers himself at home where the mice dance in the kitchen and his friend Baptiste's father forbids Baptiste from speaking to him, where the bedclothes are tattered and moldy and the neighborhood women who once brought him food turn their backs on him as though he is an utter stranger. When he stops, having discovered himself in this public square or that one, his arms and legs ache. For a fleeting moment, glorious relief, my body is still here. That he has woken up in Lausanne in the same body as in Toulouse, that he has the same legs in Dortmund as in Liechtenstein. It is a miracle to wake up somewhere else entirely, still him. But then the tick-tock hammer of time smashes down again. Fascination vanished. Magnificence vanished. Escapades no more. When he stops, it is as if he never existed at all. This morning, when he discovers himself in a public square, he is an anonymous hunk of rock rumbled forth from the earth 
severed from its molten lava past. It appears, and it seems, there are no finished sentences. Fascinating, he says, though it is not fascinating, not fascinating at all. He is not here, he is not, he is not, he is not, he is nowhere. It is as if the gift of astonishment never existed at all. What gift? Thank you. Well, that was incredible. I love, too, just the idea of getting to be the original diagnosis, right? The provocation for an original diagnosis. We're like, well, we're going to have to go back to the drawing board. We <laughs> um, that was beautiful. What, what a verb to be. Um, uh, and I wanted to thank Duncan uh, for that gorgeous introduction. And Wendy and Lois, my students, for coming. Um, these are my students who are vibrant writers and great dancers. Um, I don't know what the pedagogical methods are here, but <laughs> we dance together <laughs> in my workshop. Um, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here, you guys. I was going to read just a little bit, uh, not, not, not anywhere near as, um, as, as, as lyrical and as that sort of uncanny, but this is a story. I, I was asked to write a story an urban story, which felt pretty exotic for me, because I, I tend to stay away from cities and I'm always on a beach somewhere, um, as is everybody's preference. <laughs> uh, but this is about some urban kids who find a scarecrow uh, in their city park. And I'll just do the beginning. It's The Graveless Doll of Eric Mutis. So, the scarecrow that we found lashed to the Pinnock in Friendship Park, New Jersey, was thousands of miles away from the yellow addles of corn where you might expect to find a farmer's doll. Scarecrow country was the actual country. Everybody knew that. Scarecrows belonged to country men and women. They lived in Hick states, the I states, exotic to us, Iowa, Indiana. Scarecrows made fools of the birds and smiled with lifeless humor. Their smiles were fakes, threads, and this idea appealed to me. I was a quiet kid myself, branded mean, and I liked the idea of a mouth that nobody expected anything from, a mouth that was just red sewing. Scarecrows got planted into the same soil as their crops, and they worked around the clock like charms to keep the hungry birds at bay. This was my impression from TV movies, at least. Horror-struck, the birds turned shrieking circles around the far below peak of the scarecrow's hat, afraid to land. They haloed him. Underneath a hundred starving crows, the TV scarecrow seemed pretty sanguine, or sanguine, we're just discussing pronunciation. Uh, we'll ask that dictionary.com guy later. Sanguine, sanguine, grinning his tickled, brainwashed grin at the camera. He was a sort of pitiable character, I thought, a jester in the corn, imitating the farmer, the real king. All day and all night, the scarecrow had to stand watch over his quilty hills of wheat and flax, of rye and barley and seven other grains, which I could never remember. My picture of the scarecrow country was ripped directly from the 12-grain quilty hills muffins bag. At school, I cheated shamelessly, and I guess my imagination must have been a plagiarist to copying its homework. A scarecrow did not belong in our city of Anthem, New Jersey. Anthem had no crops, no silos, no crows. It had turquoise porta potties 
and neon alleys, construction pits, dogs in purses, homeless women with powerful smells and opinions. Garbage dumps haunted by the wraith white pigeons. It had our school, the facade of which was covered by a glorious psychedelic phallus mosaic, a bunch of spray painted dicks. <laughs> Cops leaned against the cement walls, not straw guards. And we were city boys. We lived in these truly shitbox apartments. Our familiarity with the figure of the scarecrow came exclusively from watered-down L. Frank Baum cartoons and from the corny, yet very frightening, Autumn's Bounty display in the Food Lion grocery store, where every year a scarecrow got propped very awkwardly between a pilgrim, a cornucopia, and a scrotally wrinkled turkey. The food lion scarecrow looked like a broom in a Bermuda shirt, ogling the ladies' butts as they bent to buy their diet yogurts. What we found in Friendship Park in no way resembled that one. At first, I was sure the thing tied to the yoke was dead, or alive. Real, I mean. Hey, you guys, I swallowed look, and I pointed to the pin oak where a boy our age was belted to the trunk. Somebody in blue jeans and a striped sweater that had faded to the same earthworm color as his hair, a white boy, doubled over the rope. Gus got to this kid first. You retards, his voice was high with relief. It's just a doll. It's got straw inside it. It's a scarecrow, shrieked Mondo, and kicked at a glistening bulb of what did appear to be straw beneath the doll's slumped face. A little hill. This scarecrow regarded its own innards expressionlessly, its glass eyes twinkling. Mondo shrieked again. I followed the scarecrow's gaze down to its lost straw. Long strands were blowing loose like cut hair on the barbershop floor. Chlorophyll greens and yellows. Some of the straw had a jellied black look. How long had this stuff been outside of him, I wondered. How long had it been inside the doll? I scanned his sweater for a rip, a cold, eel-like feeling thrashing in my own belly. That same morning, while eating my popple blamberry breakfast tart, I had seen a news shot of a foreign soldier watching blood spill from his head with an expression of extraordinary tranquility. Calm came pouring over him at pace with the blood. In the next room, I could hear my ma getting ready for work, singing an old pop song, Rattling Hangers. On TV, one of the soldier's eyes fluttered and shut. Then, without warning, this story changed, and the footage sprang away to the trees of a new country under an ammonia blue sky. I'd sat there with jam leaking into my mouth, feeling suddenly unable to swallow. Where was the cameraman or camerawoman? Who was letting the soldier's face dissolve into that calm? Let's cut it down, screamed Mondo. And I agreed. Nah, we better not, Juan Carlos said. He looked around the woods sharply, as if there might be a sniper hidden in the oaks. What if this, and he pushed at the doll, belongs to somebody? What if somebody's watching us right now and laughing at us? It was late September, a cool red season. I should change this for right now. It was mid-October. <laughs> a pretty warm time. <laughs> I wondered who had chosen to bind the scarecrow to this particular tree. Our tree. Uh-oh. Yeah, our tree, the one that belonged to our gang, Camp Dark. 
It was the tallest tree in Friendship Park, a 60-foot oak overlooking a deep ravine which we called the Cone. Erosion had split the limestone bedrock, creating a 15-foot drop to an opening that looked like the sandy bottom of a well. It could not have been more than seven feet across at its widest point. The rock walls were smooth. It didn't seem like you could get to the bottom safely without a parachute. Mondo was always trying to persuade us to throw a mattress down there and jump. The cone had become an open casket of trash. Way down at the bottom, you could see wet blue dirt with radishy pink streaks across it, as exotic looking to me as a seafloor. Condoms and needles, not ours and the silver shreds of dodo, potato chip bags, and beer bottles, mostly ours, seemed to grow among the weeds. The great oak leaned its shadow into the cone like a girl playing at suicide, quailing its many fiery leaves. We'd been meeting under this oak for four years, ever since we were 10 years old. Back then, we played actual games. We hid and we sought. We did benign stuff in trees. We amassed a plastic weapons cache in the hollow of the oak that included the Sounds of Warfare Blazer, a toy gun that required 16 AAA batteries to make a noise like a tubercular guinea pig. <laughs> Those were innocent times. Then we'd got it shunted into Anthem's upper grades, and now as freshmen we came here to drink beers and to antagonize one another. Bi-weekly, we shoplifted liquor and snacks in a surprisingly orderly way, rotating this duty. We're communists, shrieked Mondo once, pumping a fistful of red-hot peanuts into the sky. And Juan Carlos, who did homework, snorted, you are quite confused, my bro. <laughs> Friendship Park was Anthem's last green space, 60 acres of woods bordered by gas and fire stations and a condemned pizza buffet. The pizza party is canceled, read a sign above a bulldozer. The central acres of Friendship Park were filled with pines and spruce and squirrels that chittered some charming bullshit at you up on their hind legs begging for a handout. They lived in trash cans and had the wide-eyed, innocent look and threadbare fur of child junkies. Had they wised up, our anthem squirrels might have mugged us and used our wallets to buy train tickets to the National Park, an hour north of Jersey's depressed downtown. Only Juan Carlos had seen those real woods. There was a river with a purple fish shitting in it was all we got out of him. <laughs> Behind our oak was a playground over which we also claimed dominion. Recently, the Anthem City Parks and Recreation had received a big grant, and now the playground looked like a madhouse. Padded swings, padded slides, padded gyms, padded seesaws, and go wheelies. All the once fun equipment had gotten upholstered by the city in red loony bin foam. This was to absorb the risk of a lawsuit, said Juan Carlos. One night at Juan Carlos's suggestion, we all took turns pissing hooch onto the harm-preventing pillows. Our park had a poop-strewn dog run and an orange baseball diamond, a creepy pond that, like certain towns in Florida, had at one time been a very popular vacation destination for waterfowl, and a Conestoga-looking covered picnic area. Gus claimed to have had sex there last Valentine's Day on the cement tables. Pussy sex, he said authoritatively, not just the mouth kind. Our feeling was if Gus really did trick a girl into coming to our park in late February, they most likely had talked about non-controversial subjects, like the coldness of snow and the excellence of Gus's weed, all the while wearing sex-thwarting parkas. The oak was covered with markings from our delinquent forebears. V loves K, death to asshole Jimmy Dingo, Jesus saves, 
I was here. The scarecrow's head, I noticed, was lolling beneath our own inscription. Mondo plus Gus plus Larry plus JC equals Camp Dark. This was a dorky name, Camp Dark, chosen when we were ten, but we could not change it now. Membership capped at four. Juan Carlos Diaz, Gus Ainsworth, Mondo Chu, and me, Larry Rubio. Pronounced Rubio by me, like a rubber ducky toy, my own surname. My dad left when I turned two, and I don't speak any Spanish unless you count the words that everybody knows, like hablo and no. <laughs> My ma came from a vast tick family in Pensacola, pontoon loads of uncle brothers and red-haired aunts, and fire-crotch cousins from some nth degree of cousindom, hordes of blood kin, whom she renounced, I guess, to marry and then quickly divorced my dad. We never saw any of them. We were long alone, me and my mom. Juan Carlos had tried to tutor me once. Rubio, fucker, you have to coo the you. My mom could not pronounce my last name either, making for some awkward times in Vice Principal Derry's office. She'd reverted to her maiden name, which sounded like an elf municipality, Durif. <laughs> Why can I not be a Durif like you, I asked her once when I was very small and she poured her drink onto the carpet, shocking me. This was my own kindergarten move to express a violent unhappiness. She left the room and my shock deepened when she didn't come back to clean up the mess. I watched this stain set on the carpet, the sun cutting through the curtain blades. Later, I wrote Larry Rubio on my folders. I answered to Rubio, just like the stranger my father must be doing somewhere. When my ma seemed to want me to do, to hold on to his name without the man, felt very silly to me, like the cartoon where Wiley Coyote holds on to the handle, just the handle of an exploded suitcase, latching into pure space. The scarecrow boy was my same height, five foot five. He was a funny hybrid. He had a doll's wax head with glass eyes and sculpted features, but a scarecrow's body. Sat cloth under the jeans and the sweater, pillowy, machine-sewn limbs stuffed with straw. I took a step forward and punched a torso which was solid like a hay bale. I half expected a scream to roll out of the doll's mouth. Now I understood Mondo's earlier wail. When the doll did not make a sound, I wanted to scream for him. Who stuck those on his face, Mondo asked, those eyes. Whoever put him here, jackass. Well, what weirdo does that? Puts eyes and clothes on a giant doll of a kid and, and ropes him to a tree. A German, probably, said Gus knowingly. Or a Japanese. One of those sicko sex freaks. Mondo rolled his eyes. Maybe you tied it up. Maybe he's a theater prop, like from school. He's wearing some nasty clothes. Hey, he's got a belt like yours, Rubby. Fuck you. Wait, you're going to steal the scarecrow's belt? That ain't bad luck. Oh my God, he's got on underwear. Mondo snapped the elastic, giggling. He has a hole, Juan Carlos said quietly. He slid his hand between the doll's sagging shoulders and the tree. Down here in his back, look, he's spilling. Juan Carlos began jerking straw out of the scarecrow and then, in the same panicky motion, cramming it back inside the hole. All this he did with a sly, a aghast look as if he were a surgeon who had fatally bungled an operation and was now trying to disguise that fact from his staff. This straw I recognized with a chill was fresh and green. 
You got your oh shit face on, JC, Gus laughed, and I managed to laugh too, but I was scared, scared. The crisp straw was scary to me, a terrible sweetness lifted out of the doll, that stench you're supposed to associate with innocent things, zoos and pet stores, pony rides. He was stuffed to the springs of his eyeballs. Put it all back, Juan, I thought, and we'll still be okay. Uh, you dudes, do scarecrows have fingers? Mondo giggled again and held out the doll's white hand very formally, as if he were suddenly in a cummerbund, accompanying the scarecrow to the world's scariest prom. <laughs> the hand dangled heavily from the doll's stapled sleeve. It looked like a plaster cast with five slender fingers. The boy's face was molded out of this same white material, and his features weren't generic like a mall mannequin's, but crooked, odd very skillfully misshapen, based on somebody's real face, I realized, like the famous dummies in the wax museum, somebody you were supposed to recognize. The longer I stared at him, the less real I myself felt. Was I the only one who remembered his name? Weird, his face is cold. Juan Carlos slid a finger down the wax nose. What the fuck, he's wearing hoops. Gus knelt to show us a pair of black sneaker toes poking out from the scarecrow's cuffs. At school, we made a point of stealing hoops from any kids stupid enough to wear them. Hoops were imitation Nikes glittering with an insulting earsatz gold. Just the sight of a pair used to enrage me. The H logo was a flamboyant way to announce to your class, Hey, I'm poor. He's not wearing his glasses, I mumbled. Now I was afraid to touch him, as if the wand of my finger might bring him back to life. Can it blink, Mondo asked, grabbing at its eyes. My sister has a doll that blinks. Oh, oops. Mondo turned to us with a shit-eating grin. There were shallow indents in the wax where the doll's eyes had been. Gus shook his head. Put those back in. I can't. The little threads broke. He held them out to show us the eyes, two grape-sized balls of glass. Any of you bitches know how to sew? Intense pinks were filtering through the autumn mesh of the oak. Sunset meant the park was officially closed. Seriously, though, Mondo asked, sounding panicky. Does anybody have glue or something? A firefly was now lighting up the airless caves of the doll's nostrils, undetected by the doll. Oh, you're even blinder now, I thought and a heavy feeling draped over me. Mondo seemed to be catching on. Don't we know this kid? He stood on his toes and peered into the scarecrow's face with a shrewdness that you did not ordinarily expect from Mondo, who was encased in baby fat that he could not age out of, with big slabby cheeks that squeezed his eyes into a narcoleptic squint. There was some evidence that Mondo did not have the happiest home life. We'd all forgotten what that was, assuming we'd ever known. Don't say it. Oh, Mondo fell back on his heels. It's Eric. Oh, I took a backward step. Juan Carlos paused with one hand inside the doll's back, still wearing a doctor's distant, guileful expression. Who the fuck is Eric? Gus snarled. Don't you assholes remember him? Mondo was grinning at us like a Jeopardy champ. He waved the doll's wax hand. Eric Mutis. Now we all remembered him. Eric Mutus, Eric Mutant, Eric Mucus, Eric the Mute. Paler than a cauliflower, a friendless kid who had once or twice had seizures in our class. Eric Mutus is an epileptic, our teacher had explained a little uncertainly, after Mutant got carried from the room by Coach LeSean. 
Eric Mutis had joined our eighth grade class in October the previous year, a transfer kid. The teacher never introduced him. Kids rarely moved to Anthem, New Jersey. Generally, the teachers made a new boy or a new girl parade their strangeness for us. Not Eric. Eric Mutis, who seemed genuinely otherworldly, even weirder than Tuku, the Guatemalan new boy, never had to stand and explain himself to us. He arrived in exile, sank like a stone to the bottom of our homeroom. One day, several weeks before the official end of our school term, he vanished, and I honestly had not spoken his name since. Nobody had. In the school halls, Eric Mutis had been familiar to us like air. At the same time, we never thought about him, not unless he was right in front of our noses. Then you could not ignore him. There was something provocative about Eric Mutis's ugliness, something about his wormy lips and lobes, his blonde eyelashes, his worse-than-dumb expression that filled your eyes and closed your throat. He could metamorphose Julie Lucio, the top of the cheer pyramid, a dog lover, the sweetest girl in our grade into a true bitch. What smells, she'd whisper, little unicorn pendant Julie thrilling us with her acid tone. And the mute would blink his large eyes at her behind his glasses and say, I don't smell it, Julie, in that voice like thin blue milk. Congenitally, he really did seem like a mutant, sightless, incapable of shame. Mutant floated among us, hideous yet blank as a balloon. His calm was unrelenting. He was ugly most definitely, but we might have forgiven him for that. It was his serenity that made this kid monstrous to us, his baffling lack of contrition, all that oblivion rolling in his blue eyes. Personally, I felt allergic to the kid. Peace like his must be a bully allergen, I thought. A teacher's allergen too. The poor get poorer, I guess, because many of our teachers were openly hostile to Eric Mutis. By December, Coach Lashan was sneering, pick it up, mutant, on the courts. At school, Camp Dark beat down kids as a foursome. We did this in an animal silence. We drag a hysterical kid behind the red brick science building, usually a middle schooler, a sixth or a seventh grader, and then we would hammer our fists into his clawing, shrilling body until the kid went slack as rags. I heard those screams like they were coming out of my own throat, and I found that I could not relax until the kid did. I sensed there was a deep assembly line logic to what we did. Once we got a kid screaming, we were obliged to shut him up again. I thought of the process as what they call a necessary evil. We were like a team of factory guys manufacturing a calm that was not available to us naturally anywhere in Anthem. We so desperately needed this quiet that only our victims could produce for us the silence that came after an attack. It was also as essential to our friendship as breathing air, as blood is to a vampire. We'd kneel there, panting together, and let the good quiet bubble out of the snotty kid and into our lungs. I'll stop there. Thanks, you guys. Well, thank you both so much for um, two wonderful readings. Um, we can throw open to questions. I think I, I might get it started just by asking uh, a question about the size of stories. You've both written short stories that have grown into larger things, and I mean, I know these things are hard to, to measure, but is there, when, is there something that gives you a feeling that you know that there's more to, to a piece of work that you've already done? Should we stand up? Should we, stand you can up? say yeah, it, I think. Okay. Well, it's up to you, wherever you're more comfortable. <laughs> 
Do you like when I had like some jet lag? <laughs> so I was like, is this the opposite of what? Just do that. Yeah. While you I think you should. I think I'm in a fugue state. I think you should answer this first. Okay. Um, well, actually, all of my novels have grown out of a, a shorter story, and I mean, it's hard. It's hard to remember how how that happened exactly, but I think it's sort of a, a nag. The characters are sort of nagging at me. Um, knocking on the door of my brain, which is often shut, <laughs> <laughs> demanding attention. Um, and also, I mean, I have a terror of the blank page. So in order to launch myself into a novel, I like to have sort of people I'm familiar with. Um, that maybe no, Karen I love knowing that. I had this thing happen where um, my first novel did grow out of a short story which I, you know, it was, it was the longest thing I'd ever written. It was 40 pages, and I thought I was Tolstoy, and I was so excited, you know, and also believed that I was a third of the way done. I was like, a short novel, here we go. Should be done by summer, and it took, you know, years. So I think um, it was very similar, though. It was just that, of all the worlds in this first story collection, that was the one that was just haunting to me, and um, didn't feel finished, you know. I think in every other case, I sort of had like a check, please, we're done. Maybe, you know, this is, I hit the, the low ceiling of my intelligence and that's where this is, that this narrative impulse, I've exhausted whatever my original desire was. And then I just left, I stranded these sisters in a swamp um, in <laughs> terrible danger. It seemed like I should go back. It was the right um, thing to do. It was responsible. Yeah, it was, it was, it was like the, you did, you the only the right moral thing. to write. You can't leave that body in the desert. Um, Any questions for that open? Yes. Hi. So, hi. The, um, so that uh, novel is coming out of the um, essay, and where you uh, mentioned Herzog, and he seemed like a very Herzogian uh, hero. He seems a little like Herzog himself. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, uh, and then on the other hand, he also because he gets to a place and um, is is nowhere once he's once he's there, he seems more modern and that he's sort of like made me think of jet travel. Mm -hmm. um, so the question, such as it is, <laughs> is uh, how you um, see the guy between romantic and modern, I guess. Well, I mean, I, one way I would... Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I, it took me a long time to figure out how to sort of what, what his character was and, and what he was up to and how to, how to make him kind of legible. Um, and, you know, I think um, because, because he's sort of, uh, his um, walking is happening at the moment when tourism was, was sort of booming and becoming a, a mass thing and the bicycle was becoming a mass thing, um, I do see him as sort of on the, like Chekhov, sort of somewhere, but you know, sort of on, on the cusp of, of the turn of the century. And um, so, so in that way, he's sort of straddling those, those worlds. Um, yeah. Charlie? Yeah. 
sure. This is, I think, yeah, I was really thinking about ETA Hoffman, definitely. But I mean, um, that whole sort of the whole, the whole lineup there. Yeah, all of those magicians. I love them. And um, those are my favorite writers as a kid, right? So I think you're, if you're on that steady diet uh, for a while, I mean, it just makes sense to me that that would be the material that then you're, that's the alphabet that spoke to you, right? So, um, but when I first started writing, I wasn't thinking, I was such a dummy, I, and, still, and still am, but even more so then. And I, I was not thinking about tradition in a conscious way. You know, I was just, um, came from Florida, so I always think I got a leg up in terms of writing surreal, fantastical stuff. Just from, I mean, sometimes people are like, where do your ideas come from? And I almost think before literary influences, it's just geographical. I'm like, come with me to Miami. I want to show you something. <laughs> and this will, much will be revealed now, you know, because it really was this seamless bubble where it was like the grocery store is next to the parrot jungle, you know? I mean, everything is narrated in a matter-of-fact register, and there was no nothing to flag one thing as, as strange and one thing as every day, even though later, when I went to college in the Midwest, I was like, that was peculiar, what just, <laughs> what just went down. <laughs> so I think, so, so some of it's geographical, and then I, in, a, in my very first workshops, I remember writing these insane tales, because the stuff that spoke to me as a reader would be, you know, like Geek Love, or Kafka, or Calvino, or that was really um, something that mirrored, that, that, was, that was sort of my, the, what I cut my teeth on as a reader, so. And if I tried to write a realist story, it was a disaster, you know, it was, I was 19, so when I, when I realized that maybe the reception for a story about, like, I think my first story was somebody, like, painting landscape paintings on his teeth. Um, <laughs> and that frightened everyone. So then I tried to write a story about <laughs> adultery, but I was 19 and knew very little. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I don't think it was uh, my language. No, no, I want to know. I don't know the answer to that. I'm like, yeah, I'm also curious about that. What a great question. <laughs> well, um, I mean, in, in some ways, I find that nothing ever feels complete. Um, so there's that. But then there's, there's also um, reach, reaching a point when I, I feel that I'm starting to undo the story by, by working on it too much, you know, I've, I've sort of constructed it and now I'm kind of, I've pulled it, I'm starting to pull threads that are just causing it to all unravel. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that I, mine, I like just the, you can knead the dough too much. I'm not even a baker, so I don't know why I like this analogy, but, uh, but rumor has it that you can knead it too much. <laughs> <I've heard>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's interesting. I think it's really similar. You know, I think the workshop model can be, I love, you know, that's, that's a great teaching tool, but I remember feeling despair because I think it's sort of designed that you could feel like you could bring in your 50th revision to a workshop and still get excellent feedback telling you to go back and revise again, right? Mm -hmm. And I remember like with relief to this day that I had one workshop where my professor at that time said, well, do a revision, then you can send this out. And that was such a foreign notion to me that you could send something out for publication. And um, I often feel like I'll get to a place where I hit the ceiling of my own intelligence. It's very similar. Like it, it's, and I just 
cannot see it as a reader anymore, or I'm like changing pronouns, you know, mm -hmm. or I'm, mm -hmm. it's, the structure feels like it's in place, um, and then I really need help. Then I'll need an editor or another reader outside of myself yeah. to give me some echo back, you know, as to what's coming through, what's, what's explicit, what's latent that's not drawn to the surface yet. So I think um, often I really need help, like I need, and I've never been able to get to the conclusion of something without um, a reader on the outside, you know, another mind to let you know. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. You sometimes need someone to stop you. Yeah, um, to write and mirror yeah. back and say, well, yeah. this is all right. You've, yeah. If this was your goal, then you would. And also, I think you, I can't get there until I wake up a little bit to what I'm doing, a little bit, mm -hmm. you know? So you do develop. If, if in the beginning it's all play, like at a certain point, Usually I feel like I'm like the last to know, you know, like Amityville Horror, like I'm just vacuuming and blood is running down the halls. I'm like, oh, is it a scary story? I, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I thought it was a, a realtor's romp, you know, or like I don't. And then once you sort of figure out, I think workshop can be really valuable for that too. Once you figure out sort of like the best vision for this story, what's idiosyncratic or best about it, you can work to remove what's kind of preventing it from mm -hmm. becoming that. I mean, can I follow up on that and ask a little bit about workshop? The kind of the, the idea that workshop style was, you know, the Raymond Carver minimalist thing, where you just kept honing something. And right. but you're both writers that are interested in the strange, and you, you do very interesting formal things. Did you find a lot of resistance to the kind of way that you were working when you were first starting out? People wanting you to write more like Carver and that kind of type of writing. Um, well, let, let, let me think way back. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I think I don't. I don't think I was. I was I was in a in a period when I was in uh, graduate school and in in undergraduate too, where I was just Im really imitating my my heroes and my heroines, yeah. and to to not good effect. <laughs> so it took me I mean it took me a long time to to find my own voice, and I mean I think that's when 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 a workshop is is really working, it's it's telling you what's mm -hmm. what's idiosyncratic and eccentric mm. and fresh. And yours, yeah. So, yeah. Mm. But That's like funny. I was thinking that too, how fun that was in like the early days, right, where they would bring in someone like uh, the question of Bruno or, or Borges yeah. or somebody and then all of these strange, it was almost like a very effective fingerprinting because mm. yeah. a bunch of, you know, all of us were like 18 trying so hard to sound like Borges and it would just be like everybody's strange karaoke, you know? <laughs> like, that's not what TLC sounds like. <laughs> um, but I think I was lucky. I was very lucky because I, I hear horror stories, but I felt mm. like I had a lot of support and I felt mm. like the other people in my workshops tended to be these like freakish writers and a lot, you know, they were really kind of doing, um, in the beginning, right? Yeah, you're sort of, you're, you're fusing the influence, the, the voice, or you're, you're writing to the models that have spoken to you. But, yeah. um, yeah, I, I felt lucky that way. I felt encouraged. Hmm. Um. Hi, I have a question for Juan, and I apologize if it sounds too far afield. I just so happened to see today at the Davis Museum here on campus, uh, Rodin's The Walking Man. Uh -huh. And I was curious whether that imagery of Rodin's seven-foot version of a headless man. <laughs> I know, I love that question. And a piece that he worked on for seven years. That's how long I worked on this novel. <laughs> um, well, I love that piece, but it's interesting because I, I, it was never in my mind. I mean, I think because 
I, I'm not sure why it wasn't in my mind. I mean, I think there were other other walkers. Um, but now, uh, yeah, um, I mean, it's it's very resonant. It makes me want to go go see that that piece um, again. So yeah. I'm, I'm just curious, what were those books you mentioned? The question of Bruno, and it sounded like Boarheads or something? Uh, oh, sorry, that's my Boarheads. Jorge Luis Boarheads. What's the question of Bruno? <laughs> the Is question of Bruno? That's something by um, Alexandra Hamon. It's a story collection that is just formally really experimental and playful and, and fun to imitate if you're, if you're a workshop student. And that also references Bruno Schultz, um, mm -hmm. who was a Polish writer. <laughs> yeah, also yeah, right. very formally interesting. So. Can I just follow up on Duncan's question about um, sort of the relationship between writing sh short stories and, and novels? Do you feel more at home in one? Do you like one day? Are there, um, I guess, and I guess my question is sort of the difference also about collections of short stories, about whether you think um, as you're, do you, do you write stories individually as self-contained things, or do you write them thinking that this is a set? Right. Um, and then how is that different from, obviously, extending one novel into a... Sure. Um. I mean, one well, so I really did the first collection. You know, one of the epiphanies, that grad, one of the kindnesses of my early grad school professors was to encourage us to think about what we were doing as book-length projects. I mean, I really was at that. I was not even thinking that far ahead. So at a certain point, I think it was a little similar to writing a story as a discrete story. I think I woke up to the idea that this was sort of an archipelago of these islands that were connected thematically. And you know, um, with the with the second collection, I really think I was in a very conscious way, sort of imagining them as treating similar themes. Even though I guess arguably, I mean, the first collection is geographically linked, but I sort of think they're much stronger thematic links in the second one. And I was thinking of it as a book. Uh -huh. um, I don't know if I, do you feel more at home? And I never feel so at home. I think it's kind of like homesickness generally, you know, where you're, you're, you're longing for sort of a state that you might never have occupied, or what are you remembering? Yeah. Because, um, uh, yeah, I think that, that usually if I'm working, if I'm into a novel often, I have like, or that, like the one time, like I even know, you know, I'm still early enough in my career that I think I can't speak with too much authority on any of these things. But I remember working on that novel, I was like homesick for stories. And I thought, the day that I finish this, I'm going to go racing back and, you know, and have like a bunch of fun flings and jump around continents. And it will be as with a divorcee's energy, I will return to. But it's like they're very different sort of. They're different pleasures, different pleasures. Yeah. And then when, and then when I was reading stories, I was like, I sort of miss going home to a stable world. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have that where it's like grass is always greener or something? Well, I mean, I, I, I know that with this novel, because I was working on it for so long, I, yeah. I longed to finish sort of discrete sections of it. So I was constantly turning pieces of it into discrete stories. Uh -huh. um, and now all I want to do is write sort of fragments <laughs> and prose poems. So, yeah, I think I was homesick, as Karen said. It's a great word for it. Yeah. Anybody else got a question? No. No? Oh, Sonia. Uh, Karen, I was at Tin House readings over the summer. Yes. I don't know, at the new house we had this whole Madame Bovary fest recently. 
I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about reading Madame Bovary yourself and writing that story. Oh, sure. Oh, nice. You got so I wrote like fan fiction about Madame Bovary's greyhound. <laughs> Speaking of a fugue state, that can happen. Dude, it's just like a strange, a strange detour in one's career. I was late to Madame Bovary. I, I mean, I had been lying about. I was right. I was saying it to Nas. I just been like, basically lying, and then kind of convinced myself in the Bernie Madoff way. I'm like, I think I have read it, or so I certainly have memories of it. It was beautiful. <laughs> um, love is so hard. And then I. <laughs> And then I did, yes, yeah, I did read it, and apparently I read the wrong, the Lydia Davis translation, I guess, is the way to go, whatever, I'll have to return, I loved this book so much, and I just loved Mm -hmm. how, um, how completely contemporary aspects of it felt to me, and, um, you know, I just, I just sort of fell in love with the book, and I was haunted by, you know, you always try to find points of entry, and I think, I really wanted to write a love story, but I am, um, wouldn't be able to do it in Noonlight with human characters. Just feels deadening, I wouldn't know how to do it. But I did sort of wanna, I, I was thinking myself about um, just that just that problem, right? Of the dueling instinct to run and to stay and just her fantasy life, um, being possessed of a fantasy life, you know? Um, so there's this passage in the middle of the book where they're on their way to Yonville and I don't know, they stop for a bathroom break or who knows what, but the little dog like goes running off um, it's like a really heartbreaking sort of foreshadowing, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like sort of this like beautiful animal augury, and then the dog never returns. So, just seemed like, um, what, what, what's to be done? But you just wonder about what happened Follow to the, the dog. dog. It's a very, and it was just, you know, it was like a sort of this uh, material symbol of like the, that's all the promise of their early union and this kind of blind gift from poor, you know, Charlie to Emma. <laughs> Oh, Marilyn. Uh, I was interested in, in this bird. I read the complete version of it. I enjoyed very much. It gets so much scarier. It's so scary to get through a world creepy. I will testify. <laughs> but I'm really interested in the sort of just the first person narration in it. Uh, you know, it doesn't seem so very much time between the time the story is being told and the time it happens. It's funny, I, you know, I've been, I, I often think about this, and I, in, in my first collection, too, there are all these first-person voices where they, I take up. Oh, well, thank you. I, so, but these kids, they're, they're accessing sort of, often I'll take some liberties, I think, in terms of the language, and the way that I have post-talk justified this to myself, right, is um, 
that I'm sacrificing one kind of realism, which would be, you know, limiting yourself to the vocabulary of an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old, or in this case, a 14-year-old, you know, um, in sort of the Emma Donahue room way, where it's going to be a really narrow gauge and really faithful to the idiom of kids. So and often I think I do take some liberties, but it, I, I tell myself, or I hope that the, the, the intent is um, to recreate kind of the, that emotional state with greater fidelity. So I wouldn't be able to do that, I don't think, if I was really just using the language of some 14-year-old boy. And it's funny, too. Like, I just think I must be citing my own experience a lot, which was that I was, like, a pretty hyperverbal, you know, pretty blinkered kid, you know? Like, so that, that gulf, I think, is poignant about that time because often you do have access to adult insights and you are cutting your teeth on some. You know, Juno Diaz is someone who I love, and I think he does this really splendidly, where he'll give his characters, his teenage characters, access to you know, these verbal flights that they are capable of. We all know teenagers are capable of them, but then he also really tries hard to stay true to the innocence of that time and not overreach, you know? So I don't know. I, I'm sure that I, there are missteps in there too, but I think, I, I really think of it as a retrospective tone that is trying to recreate no, I, I actually, that state. Not, the player, it's interesting. Do you ever think about the character who is older talking back? Oh, do I imagine who that person is? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Yeah, I do. I do imagine that guy. I do imagine that guy. And I mean, I think I sort of imagine him as a, I imagine him as addressing the story to this kind of scarecrow self that's still stuck in that, in that moment, right? So I imagine him addressing the story to sort of this, where he himself is staked in this like, you know, this kind of painful memory, like the traumatic repetition of that, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, Sorry, thank you. <laughs> I didn't mean to get all like legalistic and defensive either. <laughs> Last question from someone. I was gonna, one of the things I was gonna ask is, um, certainly in your first mo novel mode, you've got a woman who's struggling to sort of to break out into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And in your, you've got a lot of kids that get thrown into adulthood a little early, especially in, in Swamplandia. Um, that that liminal zone that you just mentioned is just seems to be a fascinating. It's the time when we, do, I think, we do our most intense reading, and the, mm -hmm. when we process most stuff. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you use that 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 kind of experience, that that um, liminal experience in your work? Well, I mean, in in my first novel, um, which is a much more sort of comic novel in, in a lot of ways. I've gone, I've gone very much in a, in a different direction. But um, what, what seemed um, freeing there was to have an adult, as you say, kind of trying to get out of adulthood or sort of not able to understand it, but to juxtapose her with, with her mother, for instance, who, who is not quite an adult, but she's, she's certainly, you know, put, putting on adulthood putting on adult airs. Um, so, so finding a space, um, a kind of emotional space for a character where they've sort of cast off or they can see more clearly the, the sort of landmark aspects that they're meant to be hitting and yet they're nowhere near them. Um, I, I find that particularly moving. And then with, with Albert, I mean, he's, he's sort of constantly seeking escape um, and, and finding a liminal space, which I sort of, I imagine to be a kind of ecstatic state, but one that he can't control. And, and so I, you know, I was interested in how operating outside of time 
um, you know, sort of losing a sense of time might affect a person in that way. But. Yeah, it did sound totally euphoric. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, I, I, I mean, that, and yeah, just the crushing freight of sort of this stable identity, too. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's also painful to lose that, but my goodness. Um, I love that liminal space, mm. um, and I think adolescence, but partially because you do have access to so much. You know, you can sort of have private kid vision and whatever weird kid calculus you're using to add up the world, and then you, you have sort of like consensus reality that you're being taught in school, um, and that slide around. I like, I love so much what Maude is saying, like the landscape too. So there are these like definite geologic milestones you're supposed to be hitting, hmm. you know, like this normative track. And um, uh, I think it can be painful, you know, right, that there is some sort of... Um, I would say I wrote this story about these girls who, they're wolf girls and they're re-educated by nuns. And just the sort of like dopey adult faith that it's going to happen in a linear way, you know, that there are these stages. Hmm. So I think I'm really interested too. Like, I guess there's progress, but it's always connected to loss and it certainly doesn't feel completely linear to me that mm. time. Mm. Um, and if you're going to write some, some supernatural stuff, I just think that is truly like a shimmering period, mm -hmm. adolescence. Mm. Um, I don't think anything is really stabled or, you know, or, or fixed yet. I just said stabled like it's a verb. But I think that also applies. Yeah, everyone's trying to force you into some weird corral. And mm. you're, uh, like the presidents. Yeah. Can I ask Mon a question? Yeah, go ahead. Do you have recommendations? I just love, I love that opening so much. Were there people you were reading who also write lucidly about madness that we should be reading? Um, well, you know, the, I mean, the influences on that, oh, Janet Frame is someone who, who I, I love a lot. Adam Hazlitt is someone who I think writes quite, quite well about madness. Gogol, even though he's not sort of doing it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> but then, I mean, I think also I was, I was, you know, Catherine Davis is someone whose work I admire a lot, and and her not she has this novel Versailles, which is narrated from the point of view of Marie Antoinette's soul, and and so there's this kind of intersection of you know she sort of imagines her way into history, and I found myself really captivated in the last seven years, and uh, by a kind of historical fiction that is more imagined than perhaps conventional historical fiction is. You know, that, that there's, uh, Monique Trong does this with uh, The Book of Salt, where she invents a Vietnamese chef for Stein and Toklas in Paris. Um, Paul Lafarge does it with uh, Houseman or the Distinction, where he in, kind of embellishes the mistress of Houseman at the time Houseman was redesigning Paris. Um, so this kind of, this intersection of imagination and a, a recognizable era, um, kind of intersecting with, with certain facts from history, I find really uh, wild and, and, and pleasurable and interesting and it kind of, um, Breaks breaks characters out of the corset of history sometimes. Living Van Tell's novels as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Feel yeah. very modern. Yeah. yeah. At the same time, there's this. Well, because I think I mean I think you can't help but you know if, you know if you're writing from a, a contemporary place, mm. you know your imagine is intersecting your imagination is intersecting with this this time and and so it is this this melding of kind of an idiosyncratic modern sensibility 
with with a particular historical moment. Mm -hmm. Jimmy? Could you talk a little about the, the perils as well as the pleasures of that genre? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason, um, I can speak about it very personally, I think part of the reason this novel took so long was that I had to do a lot of research and and I, I, I didn't feel, it, it, I, I had um, Albert's voice because there were, uh, there are, in fact, transcriptions of the hypnosis sessions that he, he, that he did with his doctor. But I had to kind of do lots and lots of re research to make sure I was getting this moment when psychiatry is basically being born in Europe right. But then I had to unhitch from the research and kind of step back from history enough in order to, to enter into it in my own particular way. And that, I mean, it took, it took a really long time and you know the the novel isn't all in in Albert's voice because I don't think a novel could sustain that so the 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 part that felt like homework for a lot of the time was this doctor um, because he's he's the one who's moving through history in a, in a more lucid manner and moving through time in a more conventional manner and and I found that at first to be you know it was sort of like I could barely get him across the room um, because I felt so obligated to to the historical moment and 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 you know I think ultimately I remained obligated to it but I, I just had to find my way in and 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 that was perilous um, if not torturous <laughs> um. okay well maybe you'd like to join me in thanking them both again for the wonderful readings <laughs> <laughs>